Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. And it says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins." Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Well, good morning. It's good to have you guys. Thank you for joining us. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me in, in your Bibles to that passage, Luke chapter 1. You are going to need your Bible today. We need our Bible every day, but today you're especially going to need it because we're going to spend some time in Luke chapter 1, John chapter 1, and Colossians chapter 1. So if you didn't get a Bible, you can have the, uh, grab one of the blue ones in the back, find it on your phone. If you uh, grew up in church, they might feel a little bit like one of those old school sword drills. You ever remember those growing up in Sunday school? Like they'd give you a Bible and they'd give you a scripture and you had to turn to it as fast as you could and the winner was the best Christian in the whole Sunday school class. Like that's kind of how I viewed it. Uh, if you didn't grow up in church, you didn't miss much. That's the extent of how we had fun as kids growing up as Christians. Who can find this verse the fastest? It was Man, I wonder why all my friends didn't want to come to church with me. What did you do at church? I turned to verses really fast. But we're going to do that today. Luke chapter 1, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. If you want to head start to look ahead, we are in a Christmas series. In fact, we are in the middle of our Christmas series. Can you believe it? Like, Christmas is almost here. It's starting to look a lot like Christmas here and everywhere you look. Today, this morning at 6 o'clock, it even felt a little bit like a Florida Christmas, kind of, if you close one eye and pretend like it's cold outside. Um, but 
I was thinking about it, the fact that we're in the middle of our Christmas series. Christmas is just a couple weeks away, and I don't know about you, but for me, it feels like there's still so much to do. You feel like there's still so much to do, places to go, people to see, gifts to purchase. There is still so much to do, and I find myself all the time thinking, like, where do I invest my time? Where do I invest my energy? Where do we spend our money? There's so many good things competing for our attention, our time, our energy, our effort. I mean, just this week, we had as a family, there's only so much time after work in the evening, and we want to celebrate Christmas with our little daughter, and so we had to decide, are we going to make Christmas cookies or watch Christmas movies? There's only so much time. I had to decide, are we going to spend our money to buy a Christmas gift for my mother-in-law or one for me, you know? So it wasn't, in, a, in, a, in all seriousness, on Friday, just this Friday, we had to decide, are we going to be able to spend time with friends or family that's in town? It seems like there are more good things that I want to do than I have time to do. There's more good things that I want to buy than what I have money to buy. There's more good things vying for my attention at this time of year than any other time of year. So the question that I wrestle with, and maybe a question that you've wrestled with, is, well, if we're limited in our time, our energy, our resources, where do we spend our time? Where do we put our focus? God is going to answer that question for us from his word this morning. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 1. We are in a series, a Christmas series, looking at each scene of the Christmas story. And with each scene, we find out a little bit more about who Jesus is. What we realize as we look into Luke chapter 1, and we'll get into Luke chapter 2 next week, is the Christmas story wasn't just a story that's meant to be celebrated with Christmas spectaculars. It is a story that reveals to us who Jesus is. The first week we saw that Jesus is the answer to our prayers. Whatever your needs are that you're praying for, whether you realize it or not, Jesus is the answer to our prayers. Last week we saw that Jesus is the promise fulfilled. That he is the promise, all of God's promises found their fulfillment in Jesus. And if we want uh, to realize the promises of God and claim those promises for ourselves, we just align ourselves with God and his promises. And this week, we're going to see that Jesus is preeminent. Preeminent. Now, that's not a word we use all the time, but it's a word that's used all the time for Jesus. And preeminent simply means that Jesus is before all things in our life. As we think about our life and the order of our life, that Jesus is first, whether we acknowledge it or not, we pretend like we are first or he is first, it doesn't really matter, that Jesus is first. He is first in position, he is first in power, he is first in priority, that Jesus is preeminent. From Genesis to Revelation, from creation to the second coming, Jesus is first. He is, what we say, before all things. And we're going to see it this morning from one of the most overlooked scenes in the Christmas story, the story of the birth of John the Baptist. And I say it's one of the most overlooked scenes because when you think about the Christmas story, like what are the scenes that flow to mind? Maybe it's Mary riding on a donkey, a pregnant Mary riding on a donkey all the way to the town of Bethlehem and she arrives and there's no room for her in the inn. And so maybe the scene that comes to mind is the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary and, the angel, and Mary riding the donkey and Mary appearing in Bethlehem and uh, Mary laying the baby Jesus in a manger because there was no room for her. Maybe it's the scene of the shepherds out in the dark field and all of a sudden the angels with this brilliant light shines around them or the magi visiting to pay homage to Jesus to worship him. There's so many good scenes, all good scenes. But what I find fascinating, and honestly, really, this year, for the first time, I realized, is that half of Luke chapter 1, which is the beginning of the Christmas story, is devoted to telling the story of another wonderful birth, the birth of John the Baptist. And it's interwoven. John's story is interwoven into the Christmas story. Why? Because John's story points to the person and the work of Jesus in a significant way. 
John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, his relative, sets the stage for the story of Jesus, just as God promised he would. The prophet Malachi, some 400 years or so before the birth of Jesus, prophesied this, meaning he uh, predicted or promised because God inspired him. He said, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So God, speaking through Malachi the prophet, says, I'm going to send a messenger and he is going to prepare my way. It says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I know this isn't a memory verse that you probably memorized or have a coffee cup at home in your Christmas collection, but it was a pretty significant promise that 400 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Malachi showed up on the scene, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and said, God is coming. God is coming in the person of uh, the Son of God, but before the Son of God comes, the prophet is going to come and prepare his way. And then God went silent for about 400 years. There were no more prophecies, no more promises of God. The people of God went about their everyday lives following the way of God, more or less, going to the temple, offering the sacrifices. But then one day, after 400 years of silence, God sends his angel Gabriel, and God speaks again to his people. The angel Gabriel showed up to a priest named Zechariah while he was serving in the temple. And he said, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. We saw this a few weeks ago. Your wife Elizabeth, who's old and past the age of childbearing, she is going to bear a son. You're going to call his name John. And Zechariah, with good reason, said, uh, how's this going to be? Because my wife is old. And she's not just kind of old. She's like old, old. And I'm pretty old. And we kind of given up hope on that prayer. And, and Gabriel says, because you didn't believe God, you're going to be silent for the, t- the duration of her pregnancy. Nonetheless, Zechariah went home, and uh, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she went off for a little while. She was probably 60, 70, 80 years old, definitely past the age of childbearing. And at the time the story starts today, Lindsay read the story for us. She did an incredible job, as she always does. The, it time, comes time for Elizabeth to give birth to that baby boy. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. Uh, it says, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Now we're going to read it word for word right now, but uh, you kind of imagine the scene. Elizabeth, old age, conceives this child. There's a lot of talk around town about it. Zechariah, this angel, Gabriel, appeared to him while he was serving the Lord and the promise. And, and, and Elizabeth, sure enough, has this baby. An entire town gathers around and they want to celebrate the birth of her baby, the promise that God answered, the promised baby, that God answered their prayers. Uh, and they're going to name the baby Zechariah because that's what you did in those days. You just named the baby after the baby's dad. But Elizabeth says, no, we are going to name him John because John was the name that God had given them for their baby. Can you imagine putting God first in your life so much so that you pray about what you're going to name the baby? I mean, that's like countercultural. That's exchanging the common for the holy. We think, man, you know, I, I have this baby. This is my baby. I carry this baby. I'm going to name this baby. But, but Elizabeth said, I'm going to name the baby what God told me to name the baby. And they didn't, they, the town didn't believe it. And so they asked Zechariah, what do you want to name the baby? And he couldn't speak for the last nine or ten months. And so he takes a tablet covered in wax and he inscribes in it. His name is John. And then all of a sudden, just as it was close, his mouth is open and he begins to speak. And the entire town is, is amazed. In fact, it says this, it says in verse 65, it says, and fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him? 
It's this really cool story, the birth of John the Baptist, interwoven into the Christmas story when the baby is born and Zachariah receives his uh, ability to speak again, his ability to hear. Everyone is just amazed because they can't explain it. This old lady had a baby. Uh, Zachariah couldn't talk, and now he can't talk. They can't explain it, but they see the work of God at work in John's life. He's a special baby. And then as, as soon as Zachariah opens his mouth and begins to speak, he prophesies and praises God for the promises that he has fulfilled, which I think is pretty incredible. I mean, can you imagine if you couldn't talk for nine months? What do you think the first thing you would say would be? I don't even want to know. Like, would you go next door to your neighbor and say, hey, I wanted to tell you for nine months that your dog stopped going on my yard, right? Like, or maybe something your husband or your wife, you've been wanting to tell them for nine months. I really wish you'd stop throwing the wet towels on the bathroom floor. Or put the toilet seat down for goodness sake. Zachariah did none of that. As soon as his mouth was open, he just started praising God. And hear what he says. He says, his father Zechariah, verse 67, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied, he praised God saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up for us a horn of salvation. For, uh, for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And what I love about that is when Zechariah starts to praise God, when Zechariah prophesies, after nine months of not being able to speak, and watching his baby, his long-awaited baby being born, the first thing Zechariah does is he praises God, not for the birth of his son, but for the, for the coming of Jesus. And I wondered when I was reading that, if I was uh, so often, so often when I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and God answers a prayer, I don't even remember to go back and thank God for the prayer. You remember, you ever do that? I mean, you never would, but I do it all the time. Like, I'll be praying and fasting, God, please go before us, please answer this, please accomplish this for your purpose, for your glory, and God answers the prayer, and I'm, he's, he's lucky if I just kind of give him a thank you on the way out the door. But Zechariah doesn't do that. He stops and he praises God, but he doesn't even praise God for the immediate answer to his prayer, the birth of his son. He praises God for the coming of Jesus. Because Zechariah and Elizabeth knew that the purpose of their son from the day of his birth, from the day of his conception to the day of his birth through his life and into his death even, was to point to the person and the work of Jesus. And then after Zechariah praises God for the birth, uh, sorry, for the coming of Jesus and the answer, who isn't even born yet, he turns to his little baby boy. And I, I just imagine as he looks at John, who would become John the baptizer, laying there in his mother's arm, he says in verse 76, and you, child, meaning I started praising God for the person and the work of Jesus, who is not even born yet, but I know because I see his faithfulness in my life that his promise will be fulfilled. He says then to his, about his son, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High God, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Zechariah knew that his son was not the ultimate answer for his prayer, but his son pointed to the answer to his prayer in the person of Jesus, to give knowledge of salvation, verse 77, to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, Zechariah knew that John the Baptist, this story that is part of the Christmas story, this person was to point, the purpose of his son was to point to the person of Jesus. It says in verse 80, And the child grew and became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of the public appearance to Israel. What I find so fascinating about this story 
is that, that John the Baptist, John the baptizer, he grew up believing that Jesus was preeminent. He grew up, I'm sure, hearing the stories of the angel appearing to Zechariah as he prayed, as he worshipped, as he worked on behalf of the people of God. He grew up hearing about how Zechariah wasn't sure about whether or not God would be able to follow through on his promise. And so his voice was gone for the, the duration of his, uh, his pregnancy. He grew up hearing the stories about Zechariah and Elizabeth being holy and blameless before the Lord, praying for the coming of Israel. And John the Baptist knew that his purpose was to point to Jesus. He grew up believing that Jesus was preeminent. And then as soon as he had the opportunity, he lived his life to demonstrate that Jesus was, in fact, preeminent, that his life was not about him. Now, if you have your Bibles, flip with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. As you turn there, we realize that John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is not John the Baptist. John was a common name in those days, as it is today. John was the Apostle John who followed Jesus closely. But as he's writing about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 1, verse 19, he has to write about the ministry of John the Baptist. And we realize also, as you turn there, John the Baptist, if, you, if you're a Baptist, was not like the first Baptist, right? Why was John the Baptist called John the Baptist? Because he baptized people. Okay. It's not like Pete the Presbyterian, John the Baptist, Mark the Methodist. John was just someone who baptized people. You laugh, but someone was going to ask after service. Verse, John chapter 1, verse 19, it says this. It says, and this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Okay, so we're going to walk through these next few verses, and we're going to see that John knew, believed, and lived as if Jesus was preeminent. But John has grown up believing that Jesus is preeminent, that Jesus' younger cousin who came after him was actually before him. He understands the theology of who Jesus is. And as soon as John gets the opportunity, he knows that his life is for ministry. And so he goes out to the banks of the Jordan River. He's kind of an oddball. He's wearing uh, camel skin clothes and eating locusts. And, uh, and he starts just preaching a very simple message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And people are so excited to hear from God again that they come to John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan River. They travel uh, so far from the city of Jerusalem because they want to hear this message from God. And one after another, they're getting baptized, and it begins to catch the attention of the crowd, and it also catches the attention of the religious leaders. And so the religious leaders who kind of had a monopoly on the religious system in those days in the temple area, the, the priests and the Levites, they come from Jerusalem, and they ask him, who are you? And I think they're genuinely curious. John, his ministry, his life, his purpose has caught the attention of the religious leaders. They also read the Old Testament scriptures. They were reading about this Savior that would come one day. And they go out to John the Baptist and they say, who are you? And it got me thinking, if we're following Jesus and putting him first in our life, people are going to ask of us the same thing they asked of John. Like if we make Jesus preeminent, it's going to cause us to stand out. It's going to cause us to look different. There's going to be something attractive about the life we live. And people are going to ask, hey, who are you? And maybe this has been your experience. Like maybe you've been baptized recently, and as you're going about your life at school, your life at work, people just take you aside and they say, hey, there's something different. Like I can't put my finger on it, but something is different about you. The way you live your life is different than the way you used to live your life. Maybe it's an anger issue or the way you talk or the way you act with integrity or the way you have less anxiety. They can't figure it out, but they just know there's something different, and so they ask you, who are you? I love when people say, like, hey, what is it? that sets you apart. I worked for a few months in between ministries several years ago. I was um, 
part-time youth minister. I was looking for a different job. And so I thought, what's the only thing I could do to make less money than a part-time youth minister? I thought I could work in a garage door warehouse. And so I, I slung garage doors for a few months in between jobs. And uh, I was obviously the only Christian in the whole warehouse. And they would have come to me every week and say, Adam, you're weird. And I was like, I know. My wife's been telling me that for years. And then, no, you're just different. What is it? As they said, you dropped the door on your foot and you didn't cuss. We cussed for you. I was like, well, I don't need to cuss if you cuss for me. It's just something different. Say, man, I, I don't know what it is. It's just who I am because I am a Christian. And every time they, 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 it was so weird. They would like watch me. Like I would finish my lunch in the allotted lunchtime and I would get up and go back to work. And they would go sit in the bathroom for 45 more minutes. And they're like, Adam, why do you do that? Why do you? It's like, because everything I do, I want people to see that I love God. Who are you? Now, I say that the bar was so low at that warehouse. As long as you just didn't like, Basically, the bar was pretty low. Let's just say that. Um, nonetheless, people say, who are you? And I think if we make Jesus preeminent in our everyday life, people are going to say, like of John the Baptist, who are you? Like, what is it that makes you different? And then John answered, verse 20. He says, he confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. Which seems obvious. I mean, John the Baptist knew, I am not the Christ. But think about it for a minute. John was there speaking the word of God, and the crowds were coming to him by the thousands. He was one of the most popular people in the region of Judea. The religious leaders come to him, and they say, who are you? Are you the Christ? And he, and he just confessed. He says, I'm gonna, I want to put it out there. But let me be very forthcoming. I am not the Christ. I am here to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, I know none of us think that we are Jesus. I mean, if you think you're Jesus, we need to have a whole other conversation with like, some professional counselors. We don't think we're Jesus. But the question we have to ask is, like, do we live our life like we are Jesus? Like, the world revolves around us. Like, if people look at our life, is it evident that we know we are not the center of our life? But if they look at, like, our social media and our families and our calendars and our checkbooks, if they start to evaluate the things that they can see, does it look like we are the most important thing in our life? John says, hey, I just want to, I want to confess, I am not the Christ. Then they go on in verse 22, it says, so they said to him, well, then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Which I have to think John was thinking, if you would just give me an answer, a minute, I would answer. He said, verse 23, and this is so significant. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. It says, now they've been sent from the Pharisees. So when John is questioned by the religious leaders, who are you? Give an answer for who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. What did John do? He quoted scripture. He quoted scripture. Now, it's, it's, it's easy for John because there were a few Old Testament prophecies that were specifically about John. And he grew up and Mary, I'm sorry, Zechariah and Elizabeth, when they'd lay him down at night and they'd read the Old Testament to him, they'd say, now, you know, this is Noah and this is Moses, but there's these prophecies, John, and these are specifically about you. And I'm sure John grew up hearing there's one to come, but you're going to prepare his way. And so when John is asked, he just quotes scripture. The Old Testament, the book of Isaiah says, hey, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight for the way of the Lord. John understand who he was. But the same thing can be true for us. Like when people ask us who we are, or if you ever wonder, like, man, who am I at the end of the day? Like, what am I here for? What is my, like, what is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? People are questioning you. And we can quote scripture too. 
all of Scripture tells the story of who God is and who we are in relation to him. But I thought of just a few scriptures. Psalm chapter 139, verse 14, the Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That as God put you together in your mother's womb, he knew you. He, he knew you. He saw you. He understood the purpose for which he was creating. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says, we are known by God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is true of you, that God who created the universe knows you. 1 John chapter 3 says, we are loved by God. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. You are loved by God. You are called his children. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, we are blessed. We are blessed by God. Blessed be the Godfather of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It goes on and says, And even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You are known by God. You are blessed by God. You are chosen by God. You are not here on accident. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Scriptures that, are, uh, that tell us who we are in Christ. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we, meaning the church, those who put their faith in Jesus, we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Which tells us that this is, that Jesus is for us, but it's not all about us. Does that make sense? If Jesus is going to be preeminent, we can look to the truth of God's word and we can see that from the Old Testament to the New Testament that Jesus is for us, but we are not Jesus and it is not about us. And while that might catch us off guard, when we realize that, when we have that Copernicus-like moment that the world does not revolve around us, that we are not the center of the universe, it sets us free. And you're all of a sudden you realize that you're not as frustrated as you're driving through traffic and someone slow gets in front of you in the fast lane because the world doesn't revolve around you. When everything doesn't fall into place just the way you want to fall in place, you're not as frustrated because you realize that you were put here on purpose for a purpose by a God who can see what you cannot see. And that's what John is realizing when he says, I'm not the Christ. Look at the scripture. I'm just here to tell people about Jesus. I, John would say, am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Verse 25, it says, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? So if you're not the Christ, why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. It's just, as they continue to press and continue to question him, he just doubles down. He says, hey, I am not worthy of praise. In fact, the one coming after me, his sandals, I can't even, I'm not even a worthy enough servant to get down and tie his sandals. He had, a, he had an understanding of who Jesus was, and never more clearly than this next verse, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30 says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And I love these two verses. First of all, G John saw Jesus coming toward him out by the Jordan River. And with the crowds gathered around, John could have said, hey, Jesus, cousin. He says, no, no, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, that lands with us. But for a Jew in the, in the first century, man, they would have instantly thought back to the Old Testament. And we could do it very quickly because we do it so often. But they would have thought back to, all the way back to creation. 
In Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 2, God created Adam and Eve. He created him in his image to live in a perfect relationship with him, to reflect his glory to the world in which he created them to live. He put them in this perfect environment. Adam and Eve sinned, and their sins separated them from God. And Adam and Eve were, were afraid of their sin, and they were ashamed before God, and so they knit fig leaves together to cover the consequences of their sin. They tried to do it on their own, and Jesus shows up, and he, the proto-euangelion, he says, there's going to come one the, uh, the, from the offspring of the woman who's going to crush the serpent. He'll get his heel bruised. It's going to be bad for a moment, but ultimately he's going to be victorious. And before he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, what did he do? He slaughtered an animal and took their skin to cover, to make clothes for them, to cover the consequence of their sin and their shame. It was the first time that blood was shed for the covering of sin. And maybe when they said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all of the Jews who were gathered there on the banks of the Jordan River, they would have thought back to the first time that blood was shed for the covering of sin. Or maybe they would have thought about their hero, their father, the forefather, Abraham, when God said, Take your only son, Isaac, up on a mountain, and you're going to lay him down, and you're going to sacrifice your son to demonstrate how much you love me. And Abraham was obedient, and so he took Isaac up the mountain. He tied him to the altar. He laid him down. He raised his knife, and there, in the, caught in the thicket, was a, a ram who would be the substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac. And he would take his son, his only son, off, and he would put the lamb on the altar. He would sacrifice the lamb for God. Or maybe they would think back to the Passover as the people of God had grown into a great nation, but they were enslaved in the land of Egypt in the book of Exodus. And God sends Moses uh, to lead the people out of Egypt into freedom to redeem his people. And for 10 different, sa- or, sorry, 10 different plagues, uh, God, 10 different times, he would say, Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And 10 different plagues, and the 10th and final plague uh, was the plague of the, the death of the firstborn. And the angel of death was going to go all through the land of Egypt, and he was going to kill the firstborn so that Pharaoh would let his people go. But the people of Israel, they went out back, and I kind of envisioned they, they took their sons with them, and they went out and they picked the lamb. And like, you can kind of only imagine like this little boy, firstborn son, I'm a firstborn son, so I have a great appreciation for this, this Passover lamb. But they go out back, and uh, the father, the Jewish father and his son, they'd see the lamb, and the son would say, you know, Daddy, why does the lamb have to die? And the dad would look at his son and say, well, well son, the, the death angel's going to come through Egypt tonight, and if the lamb doesn't die, then you're going to die. And the little son would say, all right, come on, lamb, let's go. Right now, come on, let's go. They'd slaughter the lamb. they put the, the blood over the doorpost of the house. The death angel, just as promised, would go through the land of Egypt and take the, the life of all the firstborn, except for those who had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their house, and the death angel passed right by. Pharaoh would let his people go. Maybe they would think about the temple where every year this, the lamb was sacrificed to take away, to roll back the sins of the people. And when John saw Jesus coming before him, he said, look, it's the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, who would be the substitutionary atonement for the sins of his people. And everyone would turn their attention to Jesus in that moment. And then John says this. He says, this is he of whom I said, After me, because Jesus was his younger cousin, right? After me comes a man who ranks before me. He is preeminent because he was before me. And what I realized as I was reading this text this week is Jesus isn't made preeminent because we make him preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. The question is, are we going to recognize his preeminence, that he is before all things? Are we going to make him first in position, first in priority in our life? Because here's the thing, from Genesis to, from the creation to the second coming, from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is preeminent. He is going to be preeminent. The question is, are we going to recognize him? 
as preeminent. We're all going to bow before him either as our Lord and our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or the just judge uh, who will bestow his wrath upon us. The question is, are we recognizing that Jesus is, in fact, before all things? I promise you, Luke chapter 1, John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to land the plane here. After the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul went around starting churches. And as fast as he could start them, he would have to write to them to remind them of who Jesus is. And to the church in Colossae, the first century city of Colossae, a church that certainly was, had all these things vying for their attention and their affection, just like we do, he says this in verse 15. He says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that Jesus was created, but he was the firstborn in his creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Paul could not be clear that Jesus was there before creation. He was active in creation, and he's currently active holding creation together. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. It says, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, what's that word, preeminent. He might be first in position, in power, in priority. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We see the Christmas story in this scripture. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The question isn't whether or not Jesus is preeminent. The question is whether we want to recognize him as preeminent. So what is the takeaway? First of all, we want to recognize Jesus for who Jesus is. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the firstborn in his creation. He's the fullness of God. He is worthy of all of our praise, and we stand in all of him. And I know that's true in this moment. I know that as we gather here for worship to start our weekend worship, you guys are faithful to make much of God. As we make much of God, he makes himself known to us. But my question is, is it true when we go from here? Because if Jesus is preeminent, he doesn't just get the first few minutes of our week, he gets the first of everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything, that Jesus is our first priority, that all of our plans, what we're going to do today, what we're going to do tomorrow, where we're going to go for lunch, where we're going to drive, what we're going to do, all of our plans filter through our recognition of who Jesus is. Elizabeth didn't even name her son without praying, God, what would you have me name my son? That Jesus is preeminent in our family. That our family's priorities, where we spend our time, where we invest our energy, what, what the, the activities we participate in, the places we go, the people we see, we filter all of that every day through the will of the preeminent God. That Jesus is preeminent in our work. That as we pray about where we're going to work, we ask God, go before us and show us the place that you prepared for us because my work ultimately isn't just about making enough money to get me through the week. It is about putting you before the people I work with. God, and as you take me there, use me for your purpose because what I recognize that everything I do, I do for the glory of God, that Jesus is preeminent in our, in our place of work. Jesus is preeminent in our finances, that he gets the first of all that we make, that we don't wait until we have enough to give to God, that we give the first fruits to God, the first 10%, and then more if, if God provides and calls to him. 
that Jesus is preeminent in our relationships. He's preeminent in our marriage, that we put him uh, first in our marriage. I say this all the time. Carissa and I, my wife and I, we don't have marriage problems. We have sin problems. And our marriage has gotten eternally better when we recognize that it's not about what I want or what she wants. It's about what God wants for us. And so many of our frustrating moments cause us to, to fall before the throne of God and say, God, show us that you are preeminent. And let's make you preeminent in our marriage. That he is preeminent in our relationships. If you're looking for a relationship, that we don't sacrifice the standard for which God has called us to live holy and blameless lives, not just our lives, but the people we yoke our lives to. That he is preeminent in all things. I think so often about what Jesus says. I think it's Matthew chapter 6 when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and these things will be given to you as well. If we get Jesus first, the rest of life falls into place. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy. Sometimes it's incredibly easy. Sometimes it's incredibly hard. But when we get Jesus first, when we put Jesus first, when we recognize that he is preeminent, the rest of our life falls into place. When we don't put Jesus first, we're left to figure out things for ourselves. But Jesus brings us peace when we recognize that he is preeminent. I'm going to read this Colossians passage one more time, and I'll end in prayer for us. Father. Help us understand that you are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by you, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through you and for you. You are before all things and in you all things hold together. You are the head of the body, this body, your church. You are the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything you might be preeminent. Jesus, in you, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through you to reconcile to yourself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Father, we are so thankful that we get to sit at the feet of a God who is sovereign, who sees what we don't see, who understood that the Christmas story was the story of you reconciling all of creation back to you. That, Father, as we sit here today, as we sing songs to celebrate this season, we are making much of a God who loved us enough to send his son to die on a cross for us. Father, I pray that that good news never becomes old news, that we never take it for granted. No matter how many Christmases we've celebrated, no matter how many times we've heard this gospel, Father, that it might cut us to the heart and compel us evermore into the arms of our Savior. Father, I pray that this week as we go from here, your Holy Spirit would give us a, a fresh conviction. Are you first and foremost in our life? As we think about how we order our life, our plans and our priorities, our finances, our relationships, the place of work, place of education, God, where you are leading us, God, help us to see the places where we have not put you first that you will not share your glory or your place with us or with anything else and so father i pray that as we sing these next two songs as we make much of you we might understand that we serve a god who is preeminent you're all powerful you're worthy of all praise and so father as we stand and sing we bring you your praise it's in jesus name amen let's stand and sing